Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast. For book eight, chapter nine, I had a couple of celebratory gin and tonics tonight, and I'm a wee bit on the drunk side. Um, I got a couple of, oh well, moving houses is 95% complete. Not quite complete, but the whole house move thing nearly done. Got to say, this new house is awesome. I'm loving it. So comfortable. Here with my partner and her daughter. And um, we're wrapped. One big happy family. And it's a beautiful house. Um, so we had a few drinks to celebrate that. Also, I've got a couple of jobs. <laughs> and I say that weirdly. Um, yeah, i got a couple of jobs. I got a job, I think I told you guys a few weeks ago, I'm doing the census collection as a field manager. I got that job a couple of weeks ago. I think I was meant to start today. But to be honest, I don't really know what I'm meant to be doing. <laughs> Especially because in Melbourne, where I am, we're in a lockdown, a flash lockdown. So it's like, I can't even really leave the house I can, and if I'm on work, I'm allowed to, actually. But also, they're like, but don't if you don't need to. And so, I don't know what I'm meant to be doing. I am allowed to leave the house to do moving stuff. So, I've been zipping around everywhere, moving house. I've lifted so many things in and out of trucks and cars in the last few days, four days or so. That I never want to pick another thing up again. I'm never going to pick up another thing in my life. There you go. I'm just putting that out there. I've picked up my last thing. So if you see something and you want me to hold it in my hand, no. Because I'm not picking it up. Um, so that. And I also got a job about two or three days ago. I don't think I haven't mentioned yet. But I got a job as a business analyst, which is my old career. So I'm doing a three-month stint starting next week as a business analyst, which is a bit daunting because um, I haven't been a business analyst for seven years. So it'll be interesting to go back into that job and um, exciting as well. I'm quite excited to uh, give that another, you know, reinvigorate that career. Anyway, that's enough talking about me. I've been talking about myself for uh, 2 minutes and 52 seconds. So let's talk about book 8, chapter 9. Anatole Kuragin makes quite an entrance in this chapter. What is going on here? His impression on Natasha is noticeable. What's going on in her head? Why do you think Natasha wants to sit with her during the third act? Why does Natasha want to sit with Helena? I think because she's quite impressionable and Helena makes a big impression but the more the important question is why does Helena want Natasha to sit with her um, it just seems like there's something weird going on book Virum says Karagan seems to represent all the sin you could hope for I don't particularly care for them within this story but man if the novel were told from their perspective I bet it would be a ton of fun just seems personified advice I think you yeah I think you nailed it I actually thought of that today like what would it be like if this novel was told from the perspective of Helena and her brother 
they do just go from vice to vice. And to be at the top, 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 top of society and just vice hop like that would be a hell of a lifestyle. Um, Kara Kikar says, The descriptions of the opera, are they so goofy in other translations? I'm reading Maud, and from how it was described, you would think it was amateur theatre. A bunch of half-dressed fat people singing their heart out and jumping around the stage felt like an attack. (laughs) That's funny. Um, I can't comment. I'm only reading the Maud version at the moment. Franz Zepp says, I've finally caught back up after months behind. Hey, welcome back. You know, it's funny. There was a comment yesterday of someone saying they finally caught back up. And there was two comments uh, today. This one from you, Franz Zepp. And there was another one as well, but it was on a different chapter. So I don't have access to it right now. But another person. So that's three people in two days saying that they've just caught back up after a few months of being behind. So um, I just feel like that means I'm expecting to see some new faces here and some new points of view in the conversation, which is always welcome. Welcome back. Franz Zepp says, Natasha still feels so young and impressionable in this chapter, particularly with how she seems overwhelmed and put off by the opera. It looks like the Karagans are going to string her along. Anatole is acting very predatory here, and I feel like he will move in on Natasha in Andre's absence. Although I'm hoping Natasha doesn't fall for his charm, I would love to see an ensuing showdown between Andre and Anatole. Um, Warren Kavoffi says, Seeing Helena invite Natasha over to her box reminded me of when Lindsay Lohan befriends Rachel McAdams and the plastics from Mean Girls. (laughs) Um, Hang on one second. just had to open my door because it's boiling hot in this office. I've got a little office, by the way, in my new house, which is great. Hang on, the door just closed. Sorry, I've got an office, which is awesome. I mean, I had an office in my old, old house, but now I've got an office in my new house. And it's a bedroom. It's a very, very small bedroom. Imagine, like, a kid's bedroom, the smallest you could get. If you had a queen-sized bed, I don't think you could fit it in this bedroom. And I've converted it to my office. And it's awesome. It has a heater, ducted heating. The whole house has ducted heating. But such a tiny bedroom with a duct means that in order for the rest of the massive house to get warm, this room is stifling hot. So, um, which I like, because I like to be um, stifling hot, weirdly. Now, regarding uh, Helena and her brother, Anatole. Yeah, it's, it's good, it's right to be sus about what is Helena up to. Why is she so interested in Natasha? And the answer is, well, will be revealed, but I remember it. And I just remember thinking... What a you know, what an awful family they are, Anatole and Helena. You know, there's something kind of like 
predatory about them. Predatory and incestuous, <laughs> which is not a good combination of uh, personality traits. Predatory and incestuous. Good words to describe Helena, though, I think. Anyway, we're going to read the next chapter now. If I can uh, load it up. That's what I forgot to do. In my drunken stupor. Oh my god, I'm so drunk. I don't drink much. I don't know if you guys know that. I'm not a big drinker. I'm barely a drinker at all. And so if I have a couple of drinks, that's it for me. And I had two of these gin and tonics. They were like pre-mixed ones in cans. Which two usually, you know, I'd be feeling that. Two drinks and I'm feeling it. But it turns out they were double strength ones. So that's the equivalent of four drinks. Plus I had a beer. So that's like the equivalent of five. I know it's very teenagery to count how many drinks you had. <laughs> but, um, you know, um, my po only point is, you know, uh, I'm drunk after one drink and I just had five. So I think I'm going to be hungover tomorrow. So that's fun. All right, chapter 10, let's go. During the entract, a whiff of cold air came into Helena's box. The door opened and Anatole entered, stooping and trying not to brush against anyone. Let me introduce my brother to you, said Helena, her eyes shifting uneasily from Natasha to Anatole. Natasha turned her pretty little head towards the elegant young officer and smiled at him over her bare shoulder. Anatole, who was as handsome at close quarters as at a distance, sat down beside her and told her he had long wished to have this happiness, ever since the Narishkin's ball, in fact, at which he had had the well-remembered pleasure of seeing her. Karagin was much more sensible and simple with women than among men. He talked boldly and naturally, and Natasha was strangely and agreeably struck by the fact that there was nothing formidable in this man about whom there was so much talk, but that, on the contrary, his smile was almost naive, cheerful and good-natured. Karagin asked her opinion of the performance and told her how, at a previous performance, Semenova had fallen down on the stage. How do you know, Countess? he said, suddenly addressing her as an old familiar acquaintance. We are getting up. Oh, sorry. And do you know, Countess? he said. We are getting up a costume tournament. You ought to take part in it. It will be great fun. We shall all meet at the Karagans. Please come. No, really, eh? Said he. While saying this, he never removed his smiling eyes from her face, her neck and her bare arms. Natasha knew for certain that he was enraptured by her. This pleased her, yet his presence made her feel constrained and oppressed. When she was not looking at him, she felt that he was looking at her shoulders, and she involuntarily caught his eye, so that she, so that he should not look into hers rather than his. Sorry, so that he should look into hers rather than this. Oh my God! <clears throat> she involuntarily caught his eye, so that he should look into hers rather than this. But looking into his eyes. She was frightened, realising that there was not that barrier of modesty she had always felt between herself and other men. She did not know how it was that within five minutes she had come to feel herself terribly near to this man. 
When she turned away, she feared he might seize her from behind by the bare arm and kiss her on the neck. They spoke of most ordinary things, yet she felt that they were closer to one another than she had ever been to any man. Nastasha kept turning to Helena and to her father, as if asking what it all meant. But Helena was engaged in conversation with a general, and did not answer her look. And her father's eyes said nothing but what they always said, having a good time, well, I'm glad of it. During one of these moments of awkward silence, when Anatoly's prominent eyes were gazing calmly and fixedly at her, Natasha, to break the silence, asked him how he liked Moscow. She asked the question and blushed. She felt all the time that by talking to him, she was doing something improper. Anatoly smiled as though to encourage her. At first I did not like it much, because what makes a town pleasant, ce sont les jolies femmes, are the pretty women. Isn't that so? But now I like it very much indeed, he said, looking at her significantly. You'll come to the costume tournament, Countess. Do come. And putting out his hand, he... Sorry, putting out his hand to her, bouquet, and dropping his voice, he added, You will be the prettiest there. Do come, dear Countess, and give me this flower as a pledge. Natasha did not understand what he was saying any more than he did himself, but she felt that his incomprehensible words had an improper intention. She did not know what to say and turned away, as if she had not heard his remark, but as soon as she turned away, she felt that he was there behind, so close behind her. How is he now? Confused? Angry? Ought I put it right? She asked herself, and she could not refrain from turning around. She looked straight into his eyes, and his nearness, self-assurance, and the good-natured tenderness of his smile vanquished her. She smiled just as he was doing, gazing straight into his eyes, and again she felt with horror that no barrier lay between him and her. The curtain rose again, Anatoly left the box, serene and gay. Natasha went back to her father in the other box, now quite submissive to the world she found herself in. All that was going on before her now seemed quite natural, but on the other hand, all her previous thoughts of her betrothed, of Princess Mary, of life in the country, did not once recur to her mind, and were as if belonging to a remote past. In the fourth act there was some sort of devil who sang, waving his arm about, till the boards were drawn from under him, and he disappeared down below. That was the only part of the fourth act that Natasha saw. She felt agitated and tormented, and cause, and the cause of this was Karagin, whom she could not help watching. As they were leaving the theatre, Anatole came up to them, called their carriage, and helped them in. As he was putting Natasha in, he pressed her arm above the elbow. Agitated and flushed, she turned around. He was looking at her with glittering eyes, smiling tenderly. Only after she had reached home was Natasha able to clearly think over what had happened to her, and suddenly, remembering Prince Andre, she was horrified, and at tea, to which all had sat down after the opera, she gave a loud exclamation, flushed and ran out of the room. Oh God, I am lost, she said to herself. How can I let him? She sat for a long time, hiding her flushed face in her hands, trying to realise what had happened to her, but was unable either to understand what had happened or what she felt. Everything seemed dark, obscure and terrible. There in that enormous illuminated theatre, where the bare-legged 
Dupont in a tinsel decorated jacket jumped about to the music on wet boards and young girls and old men and the nearly naked Helena with her proud calm smile rapturously cried bravo there in the presence of that Helena. It had all seemed clear and simple but now alone by herself it was incomprehensible. What is it? What was that terror I felt of him? What is this gnawing of conscience I am feeling now, she thought. Only to the old countess at night, in bed, could Natasha have told all she was feeling. She knew that Sonia, with her severe and simple views, would either not understand it at all, or would be horrified at such a confession. So Natasha tried to solve what was tormenting her by herself. Am I spoiled for Andrew's love or not? She asked herself, and with soothing irony replied, What a fool I am to ask that. What did happen to me? Nothing. I've done nothing. I didn't lead him on at all. Nobody will know and I shall never see him again, she told herself. So it is plain that nothing has happened and there is nothing to repent of, and Andre can still love me. But why still? Oh God, why isn't he here? Natasha quieted herself for a moment, but again some instinct told her that though all this was true, and though nothing had happened, yet the former purity of her love for Prince Andre had perished, and again, in imagination, she went over her whole conversation with Kuragin, and again saw the face, gestures, and tender smile of that bold, handsome man when he pressed her arm. All right, there we go. There's a chapter for you. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.